Section 1 of the Complete Poetical Works. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mirando 07. The Complete Poetical Works by Edgar Allan Poe. Section 1. Memoir of Edgar Allan Poe by John H. Ingram. Part 1. During the last few years, every incident in the life of Edgar Poe has been subjected to microscopic investigation. The result has not been altogether satisfactory. On the one hand, envy and prejudice have magnified every blemish of his character into crime, whilst on the other, blind admiration would depict him as far, quote, too good for human nature's daily food, unquote. Let us endeavour to judge him impartially, granting that he was, as a mortal, subject to the ordinary weaknesses of mortality, but that he was tempted sorely, treated badly, and suffered deeply. The poet's ancestry and parentage are chiefly interesting as explaining some of the complexities of his character. His father, David Poe, was of Anglo-Irish extraction. Educated for the bar, he elected to abandon it for the stage. In one of his tours through the chief towns of the United States, he met and married a young actress, Elizabeth Arnold, member of an English family distinguished for its musical talents. As an actress, Elizabeth Poe acquired some reputation, but became even better known for her domestic virtues. In those days, the United States afforded little scope for dramatic energy, so it is not surprising to find that, when her husband died, after a few years of married life, the young widow had a vain struggle to maintain herself and three little ones, William Henry, Edgar and Rosalie. Before her premature death, in December 1811, the poet's mother had been reduced to the dire necessity of living on the charity of her neighbours. Edgar, the second child of David and Elizabeth Poe, was born at Boston in the United States on the 19th of January 1809. Upon his mother's death at Richmond, Virginia, Edgar was adopted by a wealthy Scotch merchant, John Allen. Mr. Allen, who had married an American lady and settled in Virginia, was childless. He therefore took naturally to the brilliant and beautiful little boy, treated him as his son, and made him take his own surname. Edgar Allen, as he was now styled, after some elementary tuition in Richmond, was taken to England by his adopted parents and, in 1816, placed at the Manor House School, Stoke Newington. Under the Reverend Dr. Bransby, the future poet spent a lustrum of his life neither unprofitably nor, apparently, ungenially. Dr. Bransby, who is himself so quaintly portrayed in Poe's tale of William Wilson, described Edgar Allen, by which name only he knew the lad, as, quote, a quick and clever boy, unquote, who, quote, would have been a very good boy had he not been spoiled by his parents, unquote, meaning, of course, the Allens. They, quote, allowed him an extravagant amount of pocket money, which enabled him to get into all manner of mischief. Still, I liked the boy, added the tutor, but poor fellow, his parents spoiled him, unquote. Poe has described some aspects of his school days in his oft-cited story of William Wilson. Probably there is the usual amount of poetic exaggeration in these reminiscences, but they are almost the only record we have of that portion of his career, and therefore, apart from their literary merits, are on that account deeply interesting. The description of the sleepy old London suburb, as it was in those days, is remarkably accurate, 
but the revisions which the story of William Wilson went through before it reached its present perfect state caused many of the author's details to deviate widely from their original correctness. His schoolhouse, in the earliest draft, was truthfully described as an, quote, old, irregular and cottage build, unquote, dwelling, and so it remained until its destruction a few years ago. The Swanty saw William Wilson, referring to those bygone happy days spent in the English Academy, says, quote, The teeming brain of childhood requires no external world of incident to occupy or amuse it. The morning's awakening, the nightly summons to bed, the cunnings, the recitations, the periodical half-holidays and perambulations, the playground with its broils, its pastimes, its intrigues, these, by a mental sorcery long forgotten, were made to involve a wilderness of sensation, a world of rich incident, a universe of varied emotion, of excitement, the most passionate and spirit-stirring, en le bon temps que ce cycle de fer, unquote. From this world of boyish imagination, Poe was called to his adopted parents' home in the United States. He returned to America in 1821 and was speedily placed in an academy in Richmond, Virginia, in which city the Allens continued to reside. Already well grounded in the elementary processes of education, not without reputation on account of his European residence, handsome, proud, and regarded as the heir of a wealthy man, Poe must have been looked up to with no little respect by his fellow pupils. He speedily made himself a prominent position in the school, not only by his classical attainments, but by his athletic feats, accomplishments calculated to render him a leader among lads. Quote, In the simple school athletics of those days, when a gymnasium had not been heard of, he was facile princeps, unquote, is the reminiscence of his fellow pupil, Colonel T. L. Preston. Poe he remembers as, quote, a swift runner, a wonderful leaper, and what was more rare, a boxer with some slight training. He would allow the strongest boy in the school to strike him with full force in the chest. He taught me the secret, and I imitated him after my measure. It was to inflate the lungs to the uttermost, and at the moment of receiving the blow, to exhale the air. It looked surprising, and was indeed a little rough, but with a good breastbone and some resolution, it was not difficult to stand it. For swimming, he was noted, being in many of his athletic proclivities surprisingly like Byron in his youth." Unquote. In one of his feats, Poe only came off second best. Quote, a challenge to a foot race, says Colonel Preston, had been passed between the two classical schools of the city. We selected Poe as our champion. The race came off one bright May morning at sunrise in the Capitol Square. Historical truth compels me to add that on this occasion our school was beaten and we had to pay up our small bets. Poe ran well, but his competitor was a long-legged Indian-looking fellow who would have outstripped Atalanta without the help of the golden apples, unquote. Quote, in our Latin exercises in school, continues the colonel, Poe was among the first, not first without dispute. We had competitors who fairly disputed the palm, especially one, Nat Howard, afterwards known as one of the ripest scholars in Virginia, and distinguished also as a profound lawyer. If Howard was less brilliant than Poe, he was far more studious, for even then the germs of waywardness were developing in the nascent poet, and even then no inconsiderable portion of his time was given to versifying. 
But if I put Howard as a Latinist on a level with Poe, I do him full justice. Poe, says the colonel, was very fond of the odes of Horace, and repeated them so often in my hearing that I learned by sound the words of many before I understood their meaning. In the lilting rhythm of the sapphics and iambics, his ear, as yet untutored in more complicated harmonies, took special delights. Two odes, in particular, have been humming in my ear all my life since, set to the tune of his recitation. Iam satis teris nivis at cedirce, grandinis misit pater et rubente. And, non ebur neque aureum, mea rinidet in donu lacuar, etc. I remember that Poe was also a very fine French scholar, yet with all his superiorities, he was not the master spirit, nor even the favorite of the school. I assign, from my recollection, this place to Howard. Poe, as I recall my impressions now, was self-willed, capricious, inclined to be imperious, and, though of generous impulses, not steadily kind, nor even amiable, and so what he would exact was refused to him. I add another thing which had its influence, I am sure. At the time of which I speak, Richmond was one of the most aristocratic cities on this side of the Atlantic. A school is, of its nature, democratic, but still, boys will unconsciously bear about the odor of their father's notions, good or bad. Of Edgar Poe, unquote, who had then resumed his parental cognomen, quote, it was known that his parents had been players, and that he was dependent upon the bounty that is bestowed upon an adopted son. All this had the effect of making the boys decline his leadership, and on looking back on it since, I fancy it gave him a fierceness he would otherwise not have had, unquote. This last paragraph of Colonel Preston's recollections cast a suggestive light upon the causes which rendered unhappy the lad's early life and tended to blight his prospective hopes. Although mixing with members of the best families of the province and naturally endowed with hereditary and native pride, fostered by the indulgence of wealth and the consciousness of intellectual superiority, Edgar Poe was made to feel that his parentage was obscure and that he himself was dependent upon the charity and caprice of an alien by blood. For many lads, these things would have had but little meaning, but to one of Poe's proud temperament, it must have been a source of constant torment, and all allusions to it gall and wormwood. And Mr. Allen was not the man to wean Poe from such festering fancies. As a rule, he was proud of the handsome and talented boy, and indulged him in all that wealth could purchase, but at other times he treated him with contumely and made him feel the bitterness of his position. Still, Poe did maintain his leading position among the scholars at that Virginian academy, and several still living have favoured us with reminiscences of him. His feats in swimming, to which Colonel Preston has alluded, are quite a feature of his youthful career. Colonel Mayo records one daring performance in natation which is thoroughly characteristic of the lad. One day in midwinter, when standing on the banks of the James River, Poe dared his comrade into jumping in in order to swim to a certain point with him. After floundering about in the nearly frozen stream for some time, they reached the piles upon which Mayo's bridge was then supported, and there attempted to rest and try to gain the shore by climbing up the log abutment to the bridge. Upon reaching the bridge, however, they were dismayed to find that its plank flooring overlapped the abutment by several feet and that it was impossible to ascend it. 
Nothing remained for them but to let go their slippery hold and swim back to the shore. Poe reached the bank in an exhausted and benumbed condition, whilst Mayo was rescued by a boat just as he was succumbing. On getting ashore, Poe was seized with a violent attack of vomiting, and both lads were ill for several weeks. Alluding to another quite famous swimming feat of his own, the poet remarked, quote, Any swimmer in the falls, in my days, would have swum the Hellespont and thought nothing of the matter. I swam from Ludlam's wharf to Warwick, six miles, in a hot June sun, against one of the strongest tides ever known in the river. It would have been a feat comparatively easy to swim 20 miles in still water. I would not think much, Poe added in a strain of exaggeration not unusual with him, of attempting to swim the British Channel from Dover to Calais, unquote. Colonel Mayo, who had tried to accompany him in this performance, had to stop on the way and says that Poe, when he reached the goal, emerged from the water with neck, face and back blistered. The facts of this feat, which was undertaken for a wager, having been questioned, Poe, ever intolerant of contradiction, obtained and published the affidavits of several gentlemen who had witnessed it. They also certified that Poe did not seem at all fatigued and that he walked back to Richmond immediately after the performance. The poet is generally remembered at this part of his career to have been slight in figure and person, but to have been well-made, active, sinewy and graceful. Despite the fact that he was thus noted among his schoolfellows and indulged at home, he does not appear to have been in sympathy with his surroundings. Already dowered with the, quote, hate of hate, the scorn of scorn, unquote, he appears to have made foes both among those who envied him and those whom, in the pride of intellectuality, he treated with pugnacious contempt. Beneath the haughty exterior, however, was a warm and passionate heart which only needed circumstance to call forth an almost fanatical intensity of affection. A well-authenticated instance of this is thus related by Mrs. Whitman, quote, While at the Academy in Richmond, he one day accompanied a schoolmate to his home, where he saw, for the first time, Mrs. Helen Stannard, the mother of his young friend. This lady, on entering the room, took his hands and spoke some gentle and gracious words of welcome, which so penetrated the sensitive heart of the orphan boy as to deprive him of the power of speech, and for a time almost of consciousness itself. He returned home in a dream with but one thought, one hope in life, to hear again the sweet and gracious words that had made the desolate world so beautiful to him and filled his lonely heart with the oppression of a new joy. This lady afterwards became the confidant of all his boyish sorrows, and hers was the one redeeming influence that saved and guided him in the earlier days of his turbulent and passionate youth." Unquote. When Edgar was unhappy at home, which, says his aunt, Mrs. Clem, quote, was very often the case, he went to Mrs. Stannard for sympathy, for consolation and for advice, unquote. Unfortunately, the sad fortune which so frequently thwarted his hopes ended this friendship. The lady was overwhelmed by a terrible calamity, and at the period when her guiding voice was most requisite, she fell a prey to mental alienation. She died and was entombed in a neighboring cemetery, but her poor boyish admirer could not endure to think of her lying lonely and forsaken in her vaulted home, so he would leave the house at night and visit her tomb. 
when the nights were drear, quote, when the autumnal rains fell and the winds wailed mournfully over the graves, he lingered longest and came away most regretfully, unquote. The memory of this lady, of this, quote, one idolatrous and purely ideal love, unquote, of his boyhood was cherished to the last. The name of Helen frequently recurs in his youthful verses, the paean, now first included in his poetical works, refers to her, and to her he inscribed the classic and exquisitely beautiful stanzas beginning, Helen, thy beauty is to me. Another important item to be noted in this epoch of his life is that he was already a poet. Among his schoolfellows, he appears to have acquired some little reputation as a writer of satirical verses, but of his poetry, of that which, as he declared, had been with him, quote, not a purpose, but a passion, unquote, he probably preserved the secret, especially as we know that at his adoptive home, poesy was a forbidden thing. As early as 1821, he appears to have essayed various pieces, and some of these were ultimately included in his first volume. With Poe, poetry was a personal matter, a channel through which the turbulent passions of his heart found an outlet. With feelings such as were his, it came to pass, as a matter of course, that the youthful poet fell in love. His first affair of the heart is, doubtless, reminiscently portrayed in what he says of his boyish ideal, Byron. This passion, he remarks, quote, if passion it can properly be called, was of the most thoroughly romantic, shadowy and imaginative character. It was born of the hour and of the youthful necessity to love. It had no peculiar regard to the person or to the character or to the reciprocating affection. Any maiden not immediately and positively repulsive, unquote, he deems would have suited the occasion of frequent and unrestricted intercourse with such an imaginative and poetic youth. Quote, the result, he deems, was not merely natural or merely probable, it was as inevitable as destiny itself. Unquote. Between the lines may be read the history of his own love, Quote, the Egeria of his dreams, the Venus Aphrodite that sprang in full and supernal loveliness from the bright foam upon the storm-tormented ocean of his thoughts, unquote, was a little girl, Elmira Royster, who lived with her father in a house opposite to the Allens in Richmond. The young people met again and again, and the lady, who has only recently passed away, recalled Edgar as, quote, a beautiful boy, unquote, passionately fond of music, enthusiastic and impulsive, but with prejudices already strongly developed. A certain amount of lovemaking took place between the young people, and Poe, with his usual passionate energy, ere he left home for the university, had persuaded his fair inamorata to engage herself to him. Poe left home for the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, in the beginning of 1825. He wrote frequently to Miss Royster, but her father did not approve of the affair, and, so the story runs, intercepted the correspondence until it ceased. At seventeen, Elmira became the bride of a Mr. Shelton, and it was not until some time afterwards that Poe discovered how it was his passionate appeals had failed to elicit any response from the object of his youthful affection. Poe's short university career was in many respects a repetition of his course at the Richmond Academy. 
He became noted at Charlottesville both for his athletic feats and his scholastic successes. He entered as a student on February the 1st, 1826, and remained till the close of the second session in December of that year. Quote, he entered the schools of ancient and modern languages, attending the lectures on Latin, Greek, French, Spanish and Italian. I was a member of the last three classes, unquote, says Mr. William Wurtenbaker, the recently deceased librarian, quote, and can testify that he was tolerably regular in his attendance and a successful student, having obtained distinction at the final examination in Latin and French, and this was at that time the highest honour a student could obtain. The present regulations in regard to degrees had not then been adopted. Under existing regulations, he would have graduated in the two languages above named and have been entitled to diplomas." Unquote. These statements of Poe's classmate are confirmed by Dr. Harrison, chairman of the faculty, who remarks that the poet was a great favourite with his fellow students and was noted for the remarkable rapidity with which he prepared his recitations and for their accuracy, his translations from the modern languages being especially noteworthy. Several of Poe's classmates at Charlottesville have testified to his, quote, noble qualities, unquote, and other good endowments, but they remember that his, quote, disposition was rather retiring and that he had few intimate associates, unquote. Mr. Thomas Boiling, one of his fellow students who has favoured us with reminiscences of him, says, quote, I was acquainted with him, but that is about all. My impression was and is that no one could say that he knew him. He wore a melancholy face always, and even his smile, for I do not ever remember to have seen him laugh, seemed to be forced. When he engaged sometimes with others in athletic exercises, in which, so far as high or long jumping, I believe he excelled all the rest. Poe, with the same ever sad face, appeared to participate in what was amusement to the others, more as a task than sport." Unquote. Poe had no little talent for drawing, and Mr. John Willis states that the walls of his college rooms were covered with his crayon sketches, whilst Mr. Boiling mentions, in connection with the poet's artistic facility, some interesting incidents. The two young men had purchased copies of a handsomely illustrated edition of Byron's poems, and upon visiting Poe a few days after this purchase, Mr. Boiling found him engaged in copying one of the engravings with crayon upon his dormitory ceiling. He continued to amuse himself in this way from time to time, until he had filled all the space in his room with life-size figures which, it is remembered by those who saw them, were highly ornamental and well executed. As Mr. Boiling talked with his associate, Poe would continue to scribble away with his pencil as if writing, and when his visitor jestingly remonstrated with him on his want of politeness, he replied that he had been all attention and proof that he had by suitable comment, assigning as a reason for his apparent want of courtesy that he was trying to divide his mind, to carry on a conversation and write sensibly upon a totally different subject at the same time. Mr. Wurtenbaker, in his interesting reminiscences of the poet, says, quote, as librarian, I had frequent official intercourse with Poe, but it was at or near the close of the session before I met him in the social circle. After spending an evening together at a private house, he invited me, on our return, into his room. 
It was a cold night in December, and his fire having gone pretty nearly out, by the aid of some tallow candles and the fragments of a small table which he broke up for the purpose, he soon rekindled it, and by its comfortable blaze I spent a very pleasant hour with him. On this occasion he spoke with regret of the large amount of money he had wasted and of the debts he had contracted during the session. If my memory be not at fault, he estimated his indebtedness at two thousand dollars, and though they were gaming debts, he was earnest and emphatic in the declaration that he was bound by honor to pay them at the earliest opportunity." Unquote. This appears to have been posed last night at the university. He left it never to return, yet, short as was his sojourn there, he left behind him such honorable memories that his alma mater is now only too proud to enroll his name among her most respected sons. Poe's adopted father, however, did not regard his protégé's collegiate career with equal pleasure. Whatever view he may have entertained of the lad's scholastic successes, he resolutely refused to discharge the gambling debts which, like too many of his classmates, he had incurred. A violent altercation took place between Mr. Allen and the youth, and Poe hastily quitted the shelter of home to try and make his way in the world alone. Taking with him such poems as he had ready, Poe made his way to Boston, and there looked up some of his mother's old theatrical friends. Whether he thought of adopting the stage as a profession, or whether he thought of getting their assistance towards helping him to put a drama of his own upon the stage, that dream of all young authors, is now unknown. He appears to have wandered about for some time, and by some means or the other succeeded in getting a little volume of poems printed, quote, for private circulation only, unquote. This was towards the end of 1827, when he was nearing 19. Doubtless, Poe expected to dispose of his volume by subscription among his friends, but copies did not go off, and ultimately the book was suppressed, and the remainder of the edition for, quote, reasons of a private nature, unquote, destroyed. What happened to the young poet, and how he contrived to exist for the next year or so, is a mystery still unsolved. It has always been believed that he found his way to Europe and met with some curious adventures there, and Poe himself certainly alleged that such was the case. Numbers of mythical stories have been invented to account for this chasm in the poet's life, and most of them self-evidently fabulous. In a recent biography of Poe, an attempt had been made to prove that he enlisted in the army under an assumed name and served for about 18 months in the artillery in a highly creditable manner, receiving an honorable discharge at the instance of Mr. Allen. This account is plausible, but will need further explanation of its many discrepancies of dates and verification of the different documents cited in proof of it before the public can receive it as fact. So many fables have been published about Poe, and even many fictitious documents quoted, that it behoves the unprejudiced to be wary in accepting any new statements concerning him that are not thoroughly authenticated. End of section 1